Today's episode of Uncommon Deeds is brought to you by Barry Tile and Morrison Clark, Central Vermont stop for all types of flooring for your home or business on the South Barry Road in Barry, Vermont, 802-476-0912, celebrating 50 years in business. Bushy's Generator Sales and Service, Vermont's number one dealer for Briggs and Stratton Generators, two locations in Springfield and Brookfield, 802-591-1903 or bushysgenerator.com. We keep your power on. And Elite Designs, logos, graphics, signage, motorsports, and more. Call Bobby Therian at 802-355-7735 or visit Elite Designs on Facebook. Take your vision and make it a reality with Elite Designs. I'm just... This is Kevin Chafee. And I'm Marty Kelly. And this is still Uncommon Deeds, but we're taking over. This week... Kevin Chafee and I have teamed up to interview Justin St. Louis and Tom Corbett, the hosts of Uncommon Deeds, to talk about their stories and experiences in racing and motorsports media through the years. Um, so in Uncommon Deeds tradition, I guess the first question is, what's uh, the first time you guys remember getting interested in motorsports? Well, uh, as the story goes, I'm Justin, by the way, uh, as the story goes, my mom was pregnant with me and they used to, uh, we lived in Milton at the time or the islands or somewhere up there. And, uh, they used to like going to the races and they found that, uh, the noise from the engines would settle me down if I was kicking in her belly. So they'd go to Catamount and that would be the thing to get, at least get through the night. Then a couple years later, um, you know, we were regulars up there and, it's the eighties. So things are different. And I had to pee and they said, I'll just go down the grandstands and go pee. And I'm like two or three years old at this point. And I took them literally. And I walked down to the grandstands and dropped trout right on the front stretch and took a whiz under green. So that's, that was my start in racing. Let's see. So when Justin's mom was pregnant, uh, <laughs> wait a minute. No, uh, my Uncle Pat raced pretty much from the time I was born, as long back as I can remember. And being from a small, small child, we would always go up. My dad would help out when he could. My mom would help out with the team when she could. So I would go up to the shop when they were working on the car, and they'd stick me in the car because I'd be the only one small enough to crawl all the way back, and I'd clean the back windows of the car and... They'd find little stuff for me to do. And then they'd go to the races and they'd be helping Pat. So they would put me out in the grandstands with Fran Beattie. And she would be rocking away, watching Chuck. And I was just kind of left to my own accord. And, you know, I'd wander around and I don't think they ever noticed. But, yeah, I was always kind of there as a kid because, you know, when you're a small child and you're uncle races race cars it's like the coolest thing in the world yeah small small child as far as i can remember and then kind of took a nice break from it uh my uncle pat won his championship at white mountain in 2001 two i get the notebook i think you should fact check that because i'm pretty sure Oh, wait, no, I was 16. Yeah. yeah. I, was gonna, I was gonna say, you're gonna argue with Justin over the history of sports <laughs> in New England. God, I felt good about knowing that one. Uh, so, 2002, <laughs> I was 16. And then I don't think I went to a race 
again till 2009, 2010. Wow. So there was a long break in there. Yeah. Finished up because Pat had retired. So I had kind of stopped. Oh, I did do a couple. I helped my cousin Sean actually race in the uh, uh, mid-2000s. So I helped a little bit there. But other than that, never went to college for four years in Maine. And just never, never went until after college when I hooked up with Carl Parton doing the highlight videos. So you were watching your uncle at Thunder at um, White Mountain? Uh, he was Thunder Road for most of my life. Uh, and then he was on the tour. I think when I was 15, I started working on the crew, traveling with him. Because okay. I think you could be 15 or... Actually, I think they might have doctored my birth certificate to say I was 16 so I could go. And then they had a falling out with Thunder Road, as so many people have. It's a common theme. Some life bans were put in place for a while, which I believe my uncle still has the record of having two wives banned for life at one point at Thunder Road. (laughs) (laughs) How's that, Mr. Stats guy? That's a good one. I don't think even Dwayne can say that. So what was the story behind the bands? Uh, Well, that'll be for an episode probably with Pat. But from what I remember, (laughs) he had won or finished in the top three. And they did an inspection and there was... He got DQ'd. Something something like that. Or a (laughs) spacer plate or something. And Pat was second in the points, I think, at Thunder Road at the time. And he kind of told, like, he mentioned Tom, like, hey, we won earlier this year, and it was checked, and no one said anything was wrong with it. Okay, we understand. How about let us keep the points, fine us, you can keep the money from the race, because otherwise I'm going to drop out of the points, and I'm not going to come back every week. I'll just stick to the tour, because he was top three in the tour, I think, that year also. So he's like, if I DQ, I'm not going to win, I'm not going to come every week. And I don't think that sat super well. And then uh, I believe some rumors started where they, someone uh, started to say that Pat was handing out information on the Hooters tour to people in the pits, which was false. But that kind of led to a to an argument, and everyone went their separate ways. Now, the Hooters Amazing. tour, I mean, that, that was primarily – down south, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, I was relatively far away from here. Um, they really thought that, that that was some major threat, that guys were going to go all the way down the, the eastern seaboard. And run what's, a, what's basically a bush car. Yeah, that was, uh, that was the idea. <laughs> I think at that point they might have been looking for a reason. You know, We weren't uh, on the, uh, the love list at that point. You mentioned... Thunder Road and, and uh, the, the falling out there, but he, he scores an ACT win there in 2000, and at that time you were around 14. Um, so you said they might have doctored your, your birth certificates, or are you in the pits at, at that point in time, or is that maybe one year too early? No, I act, I specifically remember when he won that race because we were out. It was a great show. We were out on a Sunday drive. It was me, my dad, and my grandmother because my grandfather had just passed i believe the year before and 
we took my grandmother for a ride and we listened to the whole race. Dave Moody making the call. So I was not there on that per- in person, but I got to listen to that one on the radio. And it was Dave had a great call as he always did. Is there a, an after party for that race that that fourteen year old Tom is invited to? Or no, not that I can remember. I mean, Pat was pretty low key at that point. I mean, he's pretty low key in general of a guy. So so nothing nothing crazy like that. What was it that kept the, the racing bug away from you in, in terms of wanting to, you know, maybe try in a street stock or, or try to venture into racing yourself? I'm just a poor kid from Woodbury, man. That was, that's the gist of it. I think it never really seemed like an option for me. Uh, my parents were divorced. I was living with my dad and, you know, he was working crazy hours just to, just to pay for everything. I think he looked at a couple street stocks one time, and I think we could both kind of agree that there was no feasible way to do it. It just would, yeah. It was one of those things that would have interested me. I would have tried it, but I didn't have like the drive or the need like Justin did to try it. That was never me. I enjoyed being there. It was a great excuse for me to see my family because uh, most of my family all lived in Williamstown. Me and my sister are the only ones kind of that lived elsewhere, so it was an excuse for me to get to see my family all the time, and I was always up at my grandmother's every weekend, so it was more about the family and getting to watch Pat than it was my drive or love for racing. So, Justin, you said that um, you know the first time you went to a race, you were in your mother's stomach. Was that was Catamount the first place that you? we're old enough to actually go and remember sitting down and watching the races. Yeah. Um, I actually just had this conversation with a guy a couple of days ago that I just ran into him at a diner. Um, the first memory that I have of anything in my life was a test day, um, at Catamount in the spring of 87. So I was not quite four years old. And I remember very clearly that Jamie Obi was there and, Ron Lamell Jr. had C.A. Crouch's number two car there. My dad knew Jamie from high school, so he introduced me. And, you know, I don't know if I got an autograph or sat in the car or one of those things. But the next day, Jamie's picture was in the Burlington Free Press. And so I was like, you know, the next day, my dad hands me the, the paper and he's like, hey, you met that guy yesterday. So that was like mind blowing for me. And I met somebody famous and it was a race car, which I already liked anyway from TV and whatever. So that was kind of the hook for me, I guess. And I fell way, way deeper into the sport than my father ever had. That was late eighties. We kind of hit the road and did some traveling as fans with ACT. We were at Thunder Road every week. Um, we were at Airborne for the first couple of years um, in the nineties when Curly took over. And we'd, we'd go to St. Air every time there was a race there. We'd go to Lee. My parents went to Briar a few times before Loudon, the, the new New Hampshire Motor Speedway, was built. Um, and I remember, you know, growing up loving Robbie Crouch and loving Junior Hanley and Tracy Gordon and Dave Dion and all, you know, the guys that we had on the show, to be honest with you. And in 93, they had a, they had the street stock division was formed with four cylinders. And my dad, on a whim bought a Pinto 
and and had Mark Lanfear put a cage in it, and away they went. And that was, I've been free falling ever since. <laughs> so, do you remember back when you were, you know, a young kid? Was Jamie Obi like your guy? Do you remember who like your guy was? I mean, we all. I mean, I always had a favorite that I can remember, you know, from when I was five or six years old. And yeah. do you remember who yours was? So I think Jamie probably was for a little while, but he left ACT as I was coming along. You know, I think probably I was five years old when he stopped racing ACT and went NASCAR. So Robbie Crouch was my guy and he won 10, 12 races a year and everybody booed him. And I could never figure it out at that age. Like, why, why is he getting booed? Um, you know, he won the race, but yeah, Robbie was always my guy. I liked the way that he would run the outside and he'd, he'd take 10 laps to pass a guy, you know, you could get it in those cars. You could get it done in third, you know, three seconds. They had right. the power, but he would work six inches a lap up the outside. And even at a young age, I recognized that that was really cool. And um, yeah, he was my man. Tom, uh, the flip side of that, um, obviously you're, you're growing up watching your uncle Pat, um, so that, that being your guy, is there maybe a, a secondary guy that you had or someone that you were going there to root against that maybe, uh, your, your uncle Pat had a, a rivalry with, or, or, you know, a couple of run-ins with. Not really a rivalry per se. I, I think I told this story in one of the early episodes. I enjoyed Doug Murphy, who was running Tigers wow. at the time. Because I, I didn't know that. That's cool. We talked about because his mom, oh, yes. uh, when I was up against the fence, she came by and said hello, just because I was a tiny child all alone up against the fence. I don't know. Yep, and right. she was incredibly nice. So I would root for Doug Murphy in the uh, Tigers. And I would also give some love to Jeff Spooner, late model driver, random pull name for, for probably most people, because I believe it was his brother, Merv, Merv Spooner gave me my flat tops, gave me my haircuts when I was a kid. <laughs> so he would shape me up, and then I would root for Jeff Spooner as long as it wasn't ahead of Pat. Kevin, you're smiling about the Spooner name. Uh, no, it's just funny to me about the flat top thing. I was thinking that there's three of us here with not enough hair to have a flat top. <laughs> <laughs> no, Listen, before much, we... Before go any further well let's explain what the hell is happening here like how come we're not the host this week so i've known justin i don't know how long i've known you but it's you know it's, it's been a long time and you've interviewed me four or five times for different various stuff and you know vermont motorsports magazine and all that stuff but i never i don't know your story you we haven't ever really talked about your past in racing or how you got into it or you know what's made you, you know, ha- you know, the promoter and, and all that stuff. So I just thought maybe people needed to know a little bit more about you. And until this podcast, I didn't know who Tom was. And it seems like Tom's been around, you know, racing for a long time. And I just thought your fans deserve to know kind of like, you know, who they're listening to and, you know, kind of your credentials, I guess. Yeah. I'm the second Tom Corbett you friended on Facebook today. <laughs> <laughs> you you are the first one that comes up is your dad and it uh the only reason i thought you might be him is because he was associated with white mountain motorsports park and i was like ah maybe that's him you are you are not <laughs> but i found you though 
So, you know, yeah. I just I just had the idea of why don't we swap it around and, and instead of you guys asking all the questions, uh, let's grill you guys a little bit. All right. All right. Yeah, you, you both have done so much between, you know, the, the voice of, of racing on WDEV and, and this podcast and Justin at Devil's Bowl and Tom at, at Thunder Road and, and uh, you know, Speedway 51 at the time, uh, you know, a brief stint there. And, and Tom, you, you've been outside motorsports um, doing a number of other things between, you know, basketball and, and um, hockey, which you had a chance to do with, with George Como, um, who was, you know, right up there with, with Jack Healy and Ken Squire in terms of the, the top tier of, you know, Vermont sportscasters. So let's, let's get into, now that we've kind of covered your, your backgrounds into racing, Justin, we'll get to your career as a driver later on. That may, we deserve, can skip its own, that. That may deserve its own episode. Um, but we'll, we'll get into that later. What I want to tap into now is sort of um, where you first remember racing coming into your lives as members of the media. Well, I kind of hit on it. I started helping Carl with cvtsport.net because I was doing basketball games and stuff for him. Then he mentioned the Thunder Road stuff. So I started doing some video stuff for him there. And I met Amy McGovern and became friends with Amy. And she had mentioned they need someone new for next year. They want someone different. And she told me. And you work for WDEV, if you you don't know that. She told me to send in a tape, but they wanted it of racing. And I had no racing tape for myself. I've said it before. I'm a basketball guy first. That's what I love to do in terms of broadcasting, in terms of playing or spending time. That was my passion. So I had everything for that, nothing on racing. So I'd gone up to the Milk Bowl, and it was the one where it's freaking like snowing. And I'm up there in the media section with my Mac laptop and a headset, and I had to call one segment of the Milk Bowl to send off to Ken Squire. And somehow he listened to it and ignored his better instincts and (laughs) gave me a call. And that's where it kicked off. And I think that was – Justin and I go back and forth on this. I think that was 2013-ish. Yeah, I I think that – I think our first race together was 13. Yeah. But you say Ken ignored his better instincts, but – as someone who had been away from the sport for um, about a decade uh, as you had, or, or, you know, seven years or whatever the span was to come right back and call one segment of the milk bowl. Again, something that this was not your chief passion. Um, You know, you, you were just kind of using this to get the tape, but you, you did a well enough job with, you know, hardly any training in, in the context of motorsports to catch Ken's eye. And that, that must have meant something to you uh, right off the bat. I will just say I might have it somewhere, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say there was a lot of horrible Dave Moody impersonations in that in that first segment. And I was fortunate enough in that I always have when it comes to calling sports, have a very good skill at the quick name recognition and I can associate names with numbers or colors or headbands if we're playing basketball, whatever. So 
the name thing never really threw me off, throws me off. I can pick those up really quick, which helped in that sense because I really didn't remember a ton. But thankfully, I had been doing stuff for Carl. And as we're recording those, you know, we hear Maynard in our headphones when we're recording the highlights. So that got me familiar enough with what was going on and who was there, which made it easy. But yeah, anytime Ken Squire gives you the stamp of approval is a freaking honor, especially when it comes to racing, even more so. And it's nerve wracking, I will tell you that. Is it that much different than basketball? I mean, like, because I've never had to, you know, sit up there and talk during a race and, you know, call the shots as it's going. I kind of have as a fan or whatever, but, you know, never over a mic. Is it that much different? It's it's more or less just kind of some different cadences and how it goes. Basketball, I can do by myself. I can do with somebody, but only one thing is happening for the most part. Where in racing, there could be four different things happening, and you have to pay attention to which one is the exciting one. And for me, I mentioned I am someone who's not overly self-confident in a lot of areas of life. But when it comes to broadcasting, I am very confident in myself. And working with Justin starting off, I had to rein him in a lot. <laughs> and that, thankfully, that hasn't stopped yet. I just had the confidence that I knew how I wanted to do it was the right way to do it, whether that's right or wrong. And I was kind of, I we had to get into a rhythm to stop talking over each other. That was the big thing. Did you guys start at the same time or was Justin, Justin, were you already there? Well, I started, oh boy. And I guess this goes back to Marty's question as well. I um, first had a racing gig as a junior in high school in 2000. Um, Actually a couple of months before my first race as a driver, I wrote a column or covered a race or something. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was, for the new England racing paper, which was only around for a couple of years based out of New Hampshire. Um, Steve Vesper was the the guy. And so I, I did that for a little while and somebody in the ACT office had seen my writing and then the internet was starting to become a thing and message boards and I could put a sentence together. And at one point I wrecked my car or blew up or something and it was like opening day or the second race. It was early in the year. This is 2003. And I had had enough and I didn't have any money. I actually didn't really even have a job. I was selling knives door to door. And uh, and I walked into Tom Curley's office and asked him for a job. And he said, what are you doing Saturday? I need an announcer at Airborne. And I said, I guess I'll be there. And that's where it started. And I had kind of done some radio stuff starting that year. I think my maybe my first or second time ever on the radio was the night that Tracy Bellrose went out of the park and landed in the parking lot. Um, so that was a hell of a way to start. And then um, I actually, Marty, you mentioned George Como. I did a milk bowl with George. Then I kind of really didn't do a whole lot of radio stuff for several years. And I would guess that it was 2010 or 11 that um, the DEV called me and had me start doing the ACT and Thunder Road races with Steve Longchamp, who 
you guys would know as the handicapper at Devil's Bowl. Um, and Amy McGovern was working pit road. I guess one thing led to another and, and we ended up together in the booth. Steve got done at DEV and I still don't know why or how that happened. But the next year, Tom and I had a, we met at Arvad's in Waterbury and rode down to Lee USA Speedway a couple of days later. And that was, that was the beginning of our relationship. I want to backtrack to Tom a little bit. When you're doing that, that tape at Thunder Road, the segment of the Milk Bowl, that's just for the tape purpose on recording or you're on the PA and people are, people are hearing that raw. No, that was just for the purpose of recording, which makes you feel really dumb when you're recording <laughs> things without a purpose. I mean, it Absolutely. had a purpose, but not. So you have yeah. people like it, Justin wasn't there, but someone like that or TJ Ingerson or someone, you got a bunch of people sitting around you doing their stuff in the media area. And they're typing, and I'm just sitting there next to them, just blabbering away, and you feel stupid. I will say that. And I don't like hearing myself in general. We always had to do that in college and afterwards. Ooh, going back and listening to that, I'm like, oh, well, that was a waste of embarrassing myself because they're not going to like that. But I lucked out. And I do want to say, before I forget, because Justin mentioned it also, the most nervous I have ever been calling a sporting event was doing color commentary for George Como calling hockey in uh, high school championships. Yeah. Never been more nervous. Yep. 100%. Who's on the call that day at, at Thunder Road while you're doing your recording off in the corner? Because Moody's with MRN at that point, so so who's who's up there? Would have had to been Justin and Steve. Yeah, we, we would have been in the, in the radio booth, and then Aaron Maynard would have been. Yeah. Yep. So at, at any point, did either of you work with Dave Moody? I came along as Dave was getting pretty much done. And uh, Dave announced my first three years of driving. And honestly, I guess I probably wouldn't have any sort of a career without the notoriety that was given to me by Dave. Uh, because I sucked as a driver. I wrecked a lot of stuff. I have a weird name. So he kind of built this French personality of Justin Saint Louis. And I was eight, 17 and 18 years old, sponsored by a bar. So he had fun with that. Um, and it just sort of built this thing where you, you, you're not trying to pay attention, but you know, what's, you know, that I'm out there, you know, like I'm not supposed to be a focal point as a four cylinder driver, but when he makes you that and Tom Curley is the guy sitting in the chair next to him, Curley's going to pay attention to that, that idiot in the three car because Moody's barking about me. Um, and I forgot where I was going with this, but I think, honestly, I think that the only time that I really worked with David was there was a year that I did the PA at Kreitzberg arena for Norwich hockey and Dave and George were on the, on the radio together. And I sat next to them in the, in the booth with the PA mic. Um, and I, I might've done like a couple of questions or something on the radio, but nothing really working. And then uh, one, the first time that ACT went down to new Smyrna, they had Dave do the, the radio call for DEV. We didn't have any radio equipment there. None, no, no boards, no microphones, no headsets, nothing. And, 
So I, my job was to hold my cell phone by his face for a hundred laps or 150 laps or whatever the hell the race was. And then every time there was a yellow, I'd say, you're listening to the American Canadian tour at New Smyrna Speedway. We'll be right back. And that was my job. Every time that there was a lull, he'd look over and be like, I can't fucking believe that they paid you to come down here and do this. <laughs> and <I said laughs> that makes two of us, man. <laughs> Those are, I mean, Dave Moody to me is, you know, the voice of Thunder Road. I've been to, I live less than a half hour away from Thunder Road. And I think I've been there a handful of times, but the, you know, the voice I remember has been is Dave Moody's. So, I mean, you had some big shoes to, to fill. Was that kind of intimidating to either one of you? It's funny totally. that you say that because for me, I remember Dave, yes, the racing stuff. And I said, I did a bad Dave impersonation when I recorded my tape, but I remember Dave from high school basketball on DEV Absolutely. and yeah. LVB, the Woodbury kid, Went to Hazen, Hazen basketball. So we would hear Dave all the time for the big matchups, Hazen, People's Academy, stuff like that. And I would always listen to those because I usually couldn't get to the games if my dad was working. Uh, So I remember Dave more from that. So that was almost more, it wasn't nerve-wracking, but it was almost a much cooler moment for me when I did my first basketball game for DEV and LVB. Because that's kind of where I remember him most for. And he was far enough removed by the time that I started doing racing where it wasn't a, it wasn't a one, two, it wasn't comparable because there was enough of a gap in between when I got there. So it wasn't like, Hey kid, here's the mic. I'm out of here. Right. That was, that was long before I had got there. That was more, yeah. The Justins and Steve and the people before me. So I had a much different experience than that um, because when I walked into Curly's office there in 03, I was replacing Dave Moody. I didn't know it, um, but I ended up doing some announcing at Thunder Road and Troy Germain was just getting on his feet there and everybody hated Troy because he wasn't Moody. Troy is a great announcer, um, but he wasn't Dave Moody. Right. So there was automatically a bias against him. And I was kind of the kid picking up the scraps of the stuff that Troy didn't do, like the Warriors or heat races or something. And so, yes, I was very intimidated sitting in that window in that tower, holding Dave Moody's microphone and and playing second fiddle to Troy Jermaine, knowing that they're already against us because those fans are pretty passionate out there. And that's a big thing I tell people when it comes to broadcasting. And you don't have it as much in Vermont because you don't, necessarily have those names like you do in maybe other cities but i'll tell you whoever takes over eventually doing norwich hockey for george como is going to feel it oh my god yeah you never want to be the person replacing the person you want to be the person replacing the person that replaced the person that's right you know like i said i was far enough removed so you know i'm following steve or basketball wise I am, my style is so much different than a Brent Curtis that there's not a lot of comparisons to be made. And I very much lucked out in that sense that I never had to follow anybody like a Dave. Right. That's a great point. Um, Ken Schrader always tells people, I didn't replace Tim Richmond. I replaced Benny Parsons. 
because Benny had a brief stint in the uh, the Folgers car in between uh, in between Tim and, and Ken. So that's that's a great point. Be mm-hmm. be someone replacing the guy who replaced the guy. That sucks to hear if you're Benny though. <laughs> <laughs> the man was a champion. So Justin, you mentioned that you were you know you writing some stuff. And you had like a small column when you were a junior in high school. When did you, when did you start writing? Uh, I started, I, I mean, I would literally hand write race reports in my bedroom after the races, you know, on a piece of lined paper with a pen. And I don't know why I did that. It just was a thing that I would do from age 13, 14, 15, whatever. I collected scrapbooks, all the newspaper clippings. I worshipped everything that Ted Ryan and Dick Bergen and Bones Borsier wrote. Um, and tried to stylize what I was writing after them. And like I said, when the internet happened, there's suddenly an outlet for me and it's free and I can write things on message boards and, you know, you can go up in the tower and write down the finishes off the board. So, you know, the results, right. Um, and, and you can put a a story together and, uh, I think Curly had seen that Tom Curly had seen that because I'd pissed him off on a lot of those message boards and he called me out in a few pit meetings um, when I was a racer. Um, but when I showed up as, at his office, he knew that there was a spark there and that he could kind of point me in the right direction. Writing a press release with, I'm telling you with both Tom Curley and Ken Squire standing over your shoulder, they've each got pencils in their hands and they're each, saying, nope, that's wrong. Nope, that's wrong. Nope, that's wrong. Hey, that started to be right, but you fucked it up. Nope, that's wrong. Like, (laughs) I got two years of that, um, and it was brutal, uh, just brutal. And I'm a better writer for it. I think I'm a better person for it because I grew some thick skin and learned how to take a punch. If you're going to write for motorsports, I think you need that thick skin because, I mean, you're not going to make everybody happy. Oh, yeah. There's, there's, there's people that won't do this show because of things that I've written. <laughs> yeah. Looking back, um, how have those early jobs kind of aged? And, and what I mean by that is, I mean, you guys are working at Thunder Road in the shadow of Dave Moody, who is, you know, still at MRN doing a, a full yearly cup schedule and working at DEV for Ken Squire and th- their legacies have continued to expand and, and balloon in the last, you know, decade, how sort of aware of the people that you were working under and replacing were you back then, you know, before the, the expansiveness of, of the internet. And, and like I said, 10 more years of, of legacy for each of those guys. I was pretty good at it i mean i was probably at least nine years in of doing broadcasting starting my freshman year of college and it's funny when i got out of college there was a writer for the hardwick gazette who's one of the best people i ever knew by the name of dave morris absolutely and he was fantastic and he wrote about hazen basketball and I was on the Hazen basketball team. And Dave was one of the few people who really started, you know, the Hazen basketball family. 
he always told people, once a wild cat, always a wild cat. And I would go back, and I got done school, and I came back. And whenever I saw Dave at Thunder Road, at the Barry Auditorium, anywhere, he would grab me by the arm, give me a big hug, and then he would bring me over and introduce me to everybody in the media areas. Like, oh, this is Tom Corbett. He was a wildcat. He's going to be great. And it's funny because he mentioned right when I got back from college, so that would have been 2008, he said, what are you looking at? What would you like to do? And I, you know, I'd love to call high school basketball for DEV or something like that. And he said, oh, I know Ken Squire. Do you want me to call him for you? And me being an arrogant 21-year-old said, no, I'm sure I'll get there soon on my own. I'll just do it on my own. <laughs> Four years later, I did eventually get there, but it would have saved me a lot of time probably if I'd let Dave call because Dave and Ken were very good friends. So by that point when I had gone, I had felt confident in what I was doing and what I brought to the table. So it wasn't that much of a big, I mean, it's always a big deal when you walk in and you see Ken Squire and you have sit down meetings with him every Monday morning to go over the race that you did and listen to it. So yes, that's a big deal, but I was confident enough in myself where I wasn't, you know, see hearing the ghosts of WDEV past or, or anything like that. And I said, I owe a lot of that. Dave Morris, one of the best people I ever knew, gave me so much confidence when I got back and introduced me to everybody. So he was he was a big drive in giving me confidence when I got back from college. Dave was a Dave was awesome. And he was so proud of guys like Joel Hodgson and just everybody from that area. Yeah. Boy, you hit it on the head with that. So my guy was Pete Hart. Um he was the calming influence over me because I was hyper aware of everything that Dave Moody had done and Ken Squire had done and Tom Curley had done. I was, you know, that kid um, who obsessed over everything at Thunder Road or ACT or whatever. Um, so when I got in there, I was asses and elbows and super enthusiastic and, you know, just way over the top in everything that I did and, really not a lot of direction other than Tom and Ken when they had a half an hour on Monday morning to tell me what I did wrong. Um, and that was great. You know, in retrospect, it was, it was hard at the time, but it was, it was great to learn that way. But Pete Hart, who was the sports editor of the times Argus and always ran my press releases and stuff. I would talk to him probably once a day, if not two or three times a day um, for a couple of years when I, cause I got hired to do the media department for ACT as well and Thunder Road. And Pete would just give me these friendly, you know, he'd call me up and ask me how my mother was or ask me, you know, how was Christmas? Or, you know, we'd start a conversation with that. And then he would ease into notes and critiques and, and get me pointed and, and sort of shaped the path that I ended up traveling down. And, you know, the thing that I will always remember him saying is, well, that's a great, that's a great column, but maybe next week we can cut down on the use of hyperbole just a bit. That word hyperbole has kind of 
been the most negative word I've ever, you know, I cringe when I hear that word because I am that word (laughs) as, you know, in, in a lot of the jobs that I've had, I kind of have to be that guy as the announcer, you know, and, and build the show or, you know, recording a radio commercial or writing the press release, you have to go over the top with stuff, but there's a way to do it with class. And I didn't have, I didn't have Dave to lean on Dave because he was gone. He was in North Carolina. Um, And I didn't have Tom all the time other than those browbeating sessions because he was a very busy man and Ken Squire, the same thing. So I sort of forged my way um, down that road. And and Pete was the guy that kind of caught me. And I do want to give a call to Marjorie Fay, the late Marjorie Fay. She and I butted heads terribly. Um, And I actually quit my job at ACT the first time because I just couldn't work with her. The second time around, I had matured some and she really took me under her wing and, and made me much better at my job and, and also played a role there. So I'm not sure if that's what you asked Marty, but yeah, I wanted to be Dave Moody and I wanted to be Ken Squire and I knew that I never could be. And so I had to be my own thing without any training ahead of time and, and figure it out on my own and, and get those, those painful jabs from Tom and Ken in the office. And that was about all the pointers that I ever got. You guys mentioned the, these Monday morning meetings, and I know you both talked on the show before about sort of a, a continuous dialogue with Ken, especially when you guys were younger, kind of, you know, he, he'd give you announcing homework and have you come up with different ways to say the same thing. And, and that, that is a, an involvement in the, the broadcast side of it from an owner's perspective, that's pretty rare for, for a, a track, you know, owner the way that Ken was to be that hyper focused on the way that the race sounded. You know, and obviously that that coming from his his background in broadcasting. And was there ever or were there ever moments where because of that, and I know like you said you guys were building confidence, but where you thought, geez, maybe maybe I'm on the hot seat, and uh, there's there's somebody that that could could take this job for me just because of how kind of tuned in and, and hyper focused on the way that things sounded that that Ken and Tom were. Well, first, Ken, as you would expect, he is incredibly passionate when it comes to motorsports. He was not sitting down with me to critique high school basketball at any point. You know, he, he didn't care. Uh, but Ken was great, at least for me. And, you know, he would hit you with that, you know, compliment sandwich where, yes, he would critique you, but he would make sure to point out the things that he liked. So it never sounded like 45 minutes of getting shit on straight. He would, okay, ooh, I liked how you said that. Ooh, that was a good transition there. Maybe if we could change this, maybe if we change. So he did it in a way where I never felt threatened that he didn't appreciate what I was doing. It He made it sound like it was truly just, I care about this product and this is how you're going to get better. Yeah. I, yeah. I didn't mean to paint a picture that it was all gloom and doom um, because I got those same things. I never worried about being replaced because Nobody ever wants that job. Um, <laughs> the people that, that are in those positions are 
plucked out of thin air. Um, it's, you never go into a place with the, the plan of being the announcer or being the media guy or being the handicapper or cleaning the toilets. But, you know, you just say, I want a job or they see you sitting in the same seat for 20 years and say, you know enough about this place. Why don't we pay you to be here? You know? Um, and that's, that's how it happened. I worried about being fired, but never about being replaced. Um, because there were plenty of things that I did wrong. And, you know, I worked on the, on the tour for a long time with ACT and there was a huge language barrier anytime we were in Quebec and not really understanding what was happening or what I needed to be doing. Um, I always got real nervous in Quebec, um, thinking that I was going to screw something up or miss a deadline for the Montreal Gazette or something like that, you know, and that's, that's a different kind of pressure than the times Argus, uh, or the Rutland Herald or the Stowe reporter, which comes out once a week, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I never was worried about that kid standing over there is going to take my job. I was always worried about, I'm not going to have a job if I don't do this right. A good race announcer to me can, can make a really boring race sound really great and a really great race sound boring. If they're, if they're not good at their job, you know, listening, you know, to Dave Moody on the radio, you know, the races sound amazing. And then you go in, you know, makes you want to go in and turn the TV on. And then you turn the TV on and the guys are like, you know, half a straight away away when it's, he makes it sound like they're door to door, you know, in the reverse side of that, you know, you can have an announcer who's like, you know, here's Marty Kelly coming out of turn four. Now he's going into one glug 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 now he's going into th- you know it's uh, so monotonous that it makes you not even want to watch it it's it's going to be a tough job just to be able to talk about something you know even if it's boring and make it sound you know really exciting yeah i lucked out working with justin because he is so knowledgeable and he is very passionate so it let me who i'm very naturally more monotoned and lower and i'll save for bigger moments where I'll get excited. And Justin was a great balance where he would bring more excitement in those middle parts to pick up for me. And like I said, that was just, it's much easier for me running a show to have to reel someone back in than have to make someone get excited or be passionate about it. So that was super easy doing it with Justin. And then after that, it's like, I said, just getting our rhythm, which is didn't take too long. We melded pretty quick. And then just little tricks. Like you mentioned, you can listen to Dave call a race, and it sounds like one thing, and then maybe if you're watching it, it's different. You know, I remember going over with Justin a few times. Remember, we're radio. Nothing happens until we say that it happened. <laughs> Nothing. Yeah, They don't see it. We're painting the picture and we will paint it however the hell we want. Yep. <laughs> I, uh, I actually really feel the same about working with Tom on the radio um, because Steve Longchamp, who is one of the best people on this planet, and I will do anything for him, but he is way more like me than he is like Tom. And Steve was the anchor. He had the same position that, that Tom had. Uh, but Steve was never calm. Steve was a lot like me and always, I mean, you guys see him when he's in the tower, he's sweating two hours before the race starts, you know, um, before the work starts. And so he's always as ramped up as I was. And 
where do you go if you're already full throttle? You know, we had fun, but we could get frustrated easily, Steve and I, um, because you're not trying to outdo the other guy, but if something is, is exciting and he's already, you know, building up to it by the time it gets there, we're blowing our voices out. Tom would, you know, kind of read like, if you can imagine like a hockey announcer above the ice, like they always are, you can see the whole play unfold. Tom is that guy where he can, you know, see a move over in turn three and know that two laps later, they're going over the top and he would watch it, but not say anything about it and kind of lead into it. Whereas I would be like, Oh, they just hit, they're going to do it again. You, you know? And so I, Tom again was the calming influence. It was Pete Hart as for me as a writer, it was Tom as a radio guy. And that's where I sort of kind of hit my stride. And I don't think I would have enjoyed it if I'd kept doing it with Steve and I'm not crapping on Steve by any means as I say that, because it was fun, but we were nowhere near as good as Tom and I, and that's strictly because of Tom. That's <laughs> not because of me. Cause I, I brought that same energy, but Tom reeled me in. And like he said, it's easier to reel somebody in than it is to get them excited. There was no problem with getting me excited. There was more of a problem with keeping a leash on me. And Justin was easy. Cause I could get his attention with silence. If he got going, it's painful. he would start stepping on me and I'd start getting annoyed. And then he would get done a sentence and I would sit there for one, two seconds. And that two seconds feels like an eternity when there's nothing being said, but he, was getting, on the road. Yeah. he would get the point that I'm sitting there and in my mind, I'm like, you done? You good now? You got everything out you want to get out? Seem busy. Uh. And he would get it and snap right back. Uh, the first couple of years were pretty bad as far as that goes. Yeah. Cause we were honeymooning at that point, you know, and it was, we'd only see each other eight times a year, you know? Um, so it, I really didn't totally understand them until 2015, 16. And, and I would kind of have this out of body experience be like, hey, you're doing it again, asshole, you know, and, <laughs> and kind of stop myself. And then we got there eventually. Um, so I do want to back up a little bit and talk about Justin's racing career. Um, what was the, the, the first opportunity you had, you had to get in and crash, uh, drive a car. (laughs) Slap one with the crash. So, uh, (laughs) of both practice and my first heat. Uh, so I worked, I worked on John Adams pit crew. And I say worked in quotations because I didn't do a whole hell of a lot. I was 14 and my buddy Jerry knew John Adams somehow. I think his mom had bought a car from John, like a street car. And he noticed that Jerry liked racing and dragged the kid along sometime. That's fine. And Jerry and I were the only two kids in Winooski that liked racing. The only two kids. And then Jerry ended up moving I moved to Bolton with my father and Jerry ended up moving there a few years later with his mom and we reconnected and we became old enough to get in the pits and um, work on John's Mustangs, his street stocks. In 99, John ran the full year, had a, had a great car, top 10 in the points out of, you know, 50 plus cars. And 
he was selling the car at the end of the year. And I said, I want it. I don't care how much it costs. I want it. I don't know how I'm going to pay for it, but we'll get it. And my stepdad at the time worked for Land Air Express, who sponsored Chad Wheeler. And I don't know if you guys are, you're dirt guys. I don't know if you're familiar with Chad Wheeler, but that was the first real big league sponsor. Maybe aside from Mike Bruno with Kenny Drugs, it was the first real big league sponsor that came to Thunder Road. And the car and the crew and the trailer all looked the same. You know, the the white background with the green mountain, wavy green mountains and the, the blue sky and everything matched and everything was beautiful and perfect. Well, he worked there and went up to the owner one day and said, hey, my kid wants to race. We need money to buy a car. And he's, he that day wrote him a check for $2,000. So uh, I got called into the principal's office, which was not uncommon. Um, and they said, you've got a phone call, which was odd. And it was my mom and my stepdad on the other end of the line crying saying, call John, get that race car. We got a sponsor. And so we, we built the car again, this is my mother and my stepfather and my father and my stepmother all working together, which is real strange. Um, but we all worked together as a team and built that car at my mother's house. And, um, in 2000, we went racing and on the first lap of practice, I flat footed it out of the pits. It was like a preseason practice in April. And I had never been on the track. That's not true. I drove a go-kart a couple of times out there on the quarter mile, which is scary shit, but in the go-kart, you can flat foot it. (laughs) So I figured it's the same thing. And off I went. And by the time I got to turn three, I was backwards. You know, I chased it all the way down the backstretch, just saw on at the wheel all the way because nothing ever said, you know, let off the gas. No, no, at no point did I ever think to lift. I thought I'll drive out of this. I've got enough talent. And (laughs) I, I like, I remember having that thought, like I'll drive out of this, you know, I'll, I'll fix this. And finally spin around and I'm backwards in turn three facing everybody. And even in practice, they wouldn't throw yellows and it's a standard and I'm 16 and I really hadn't driven a lot. So I'm having trouble and then it's carbureted. So I've flooded it. So it's trying to get it restarted. And I'm like, this is stupid. Why am I doing this? And got calmed down. We ended up having a pretty decent practice, but opening day there's, 60 something street stocks trying to qualify for 30 spots. And we, we talked about this on the show on lap one, turn two, I again, didn't lift and hit Nick peel in the door, got it sideways, tore the nose off. And again, I'm in the same spot backwards in turn three facing traffic. And I'm like, Oh God. So we started dead last in the B feature that day, which was 27th. They took six to qualify. And by God, I finished fifth. I drove my ass off. It was the best race I ever drove. It was downhill from there. My first race was the best race I ever drove. (laughs) And um, we qualified and we picked off cars in the feature. And I remember battling Tommy Thunder side by side the whole race. And that was, it was amazing. And um, we had really a pretty shitty year, blew up a motor, wrecked a bunch of cars, not only mine, but a lot of other guys got black flag. As Tom said, it's on YouTube twice in the same night for jumping restarts, but we came back and did it again. The next year we ran airborne and thunder road full-time in Oh one. 
Um, I did win a feature at Thunder Road in my first year. Started on the pole, won by half a lap because they had pickup trucks and they ran side by side and held everybody up. There were two seconds off the pace, but I did win a feature. And then we ran Airborne and Thunder Road the next year. I won a feature at Airborne in my friend Eddie's car because I had wrecked mine on Thursday, of course. So I had to borrow his. And we ran again in 2002 and had a pretty good year. And I was going along great. I had the point lead at Airborne. I had won a race at Thunder Road and was top five in points there. We went to Canaan for the Tri-State Series, and I just put it firewall deep in the wall when a guy blew a hose in front of me, and and that was the end of that. So we puttered around for the rest of the year with a junk car, and I took a year off, and then I started working for for Tom Curley in 03 and raced a little bit in 04 and wrecked it halfway of the year, and that was about it. If I remember right, Justin, your first feature win at Thunder Road came with a, a pretty stern warning from uh, from one Tom Curley. Yeah. Yep. So the car being the John Adams car, it was cheated all to hell. Um, you know, he like notched the front horns on the right side and hung an engine block off the car and then welded it back up to build some wedge in it and cut all the springs and the head was shaved 60 thousandths, which you're allowed zero and just all the things that could have been illegal were, and I got called into the trailer after that win by a half a lap. And I figure I'm going to get disqualified for something. And it was Curly sitting there and he said, this is your first win, right? I said, yeah. And he says, how old are you? And I said, I'm 17. And he goes, congratulations, you've passed tech. But then he, and he's shaking my hand as he's saying this, but he stops and he kind of, you know, grips the the arm. He's like, but if you ever do that again at my racetrack, I will tear your ass down until we find something illegal. And I said, do what? And he said, you need to look in your goddamn mirror and lift off the gas every now and then. He goes, that was a terrible show. It was the worst show we've had all year. And he goes, this show is not about you. And I said, okay. And it, it, it made sense. I, for whatever reason it clicked and I knew what he was talking about that this, this is bigger than me. Don't run away with it. Make it look good. Um, so I did, I guess. That's, that's crazy to me. You know, being a driver, I can understand why, you know, an owner or promoter would want somebody to kind of back off and make it look good. But if, if I'm in the driver's seat, I don't care where the guy is behind me. I'm going to keep going. Cause the, normally the minute you back off, you know, someone's right beside you. So I only had a couple more opportunities to win races at Thunder road. Uh, they were both in 2002 and I had a huge lead in both of them, but it wasn't a circumstance that I could have done anything about it. Lifting wouldn't have mattered because they kept tearing stuff up behind me. Like there was yellow after yellow after yellow. They'd smash each other. And I was watching in my mirror. I remember watching in the mirror saying, am I screwing this up? And the first race I ended up winning and it was all handshakes and congratulations. You know, it was fine. And I think that he got it that day. I also don't think he cared. Um, the second time I really, it was Bush North night and huge crowd, just a massive, massive crowd that, that night. And I had started 15th or something on the track and I missed all the wrecks and I was out with five laps to go. I'd kind of broken away. And then I remembered to look in the mirror and make sure I wasn't running away with it. And then I see Matt Potter coming 
and I think, oh, here's my opportunity to screw this up. And I did. And I mirror drove for the rest, the rest of the race and I threw it away and he beat me by three inches at the line. But it was a good show. I listened to Tom Curley. Yeah, I put on a show for him. And unfortunately, I threw the the friggin' win away. But um, but it did. It was Tom Curley in my head that made me lose that race. And, it, you know, it it changed the way that I raced, for better or worse. Definitely for worse. Yeah, I was going to say for worse. Yeah. yeah. Tom, um, any Tom Curley stories? Uh on your end of uh, stern stern warnings or or any any sort of lasting uh, Tom Curley impressions, I know he got a message to me after we had done. It was a race at Devil's Bowl, and we had called it. And during the race, I think Brian Hoare was in second, and he was laying back for half to three quarters of the race. And I had mentioned that he was doing a Muhammad Ali. He was rope-a-doping him. He was just playing it easy, waiting till the end, then he would flurry and go around, which I was very proud of that analogy in the moment. Uh, But he got a message to me through Amy McGovern that said he did not want racing compared to any other sport. And I was told not to do that again. Racing is its own sport, and I'm not to compare it to any other sport. <sighs> I have way more Tom Curley reprimands. I don't know how much time you guys have here on Uncommon Deeds, but <laughs> I get a lot of them. So as long as we're on the, the subject of Tom Curley, what's your, what's your favorite Tom Curley story, good or bad? Riding home from St. Felicien, Quebec, in his Cadillac at 90 miles an hour on a one-lane logging road. Yeah, that was that was cool. Um, and actually, I have another trip in that green Cadillac that um, the year that ACT cars ended up being at the Oxford 250. What was that? Oh, seven, I think um, it wasn't an ACT race per se, but it was ACT rules and we promoted it. And I I did a hell of a job. I'm proud of, of that race, the effort I put in for that one. And he brought me over to Media Day. And Tom had a house in Scarborough, Maine, right on the ocean. Um, the uh, press conference was in Portland, and Scarborough's the next town over. And we didn't talk about racing the whole way out there. We didn't talk about racing while we were there, other than doing our job at the press conference. And uh, we he brought me to his house on the ocean, and we got Italian sandwiches, and we watched the waves crash on the beach for about a half an hour and ate our lunch and then drove home and uh, listened to jazz music and didn't talk about racing at all. We talked about family and life and philosophy and it was a totally different thing. Um, you know, he, <laughs> Tom, Tom loved going to Montreal to the casinos and gambling. Uh, he was a, he was a big blackjack player. And he had an envelope on him, a manila manila envelope in his pocket, in his breast pocket of his jacket at all times with $5,000 cash. And he would scribble a ledger of his win and loss record for the night. And uh, I remember him, you know, showing me that not, not that he was trying to impress me with the amount of money that he had on him, but, you know, we'd started talking about cards and he was a big Montreal Canadiens fan. And so was I and Red Sox we had in common and um, just, stuff like that really 
you know, uh, that's the stuff that I miss about Tom. He was a prick to work for, but when you got to know him and get inside the circle and I was fortunate to do that, uh, he could be pretty good. To what degree, I mean, we talk about, uh, blackjack and, uh, you know, the Montreal Canadians, the Boston Red Sox, jazz music, watching the, the waves roll off the shore. Um, to what degree was Tom a, a passionate race fan and enthusiast? And to what degree was, was Thunder Road and the ACT, uh, sort of just another business venture for him? Uh, the passion was total. Yeah. No, everything else, everything else was secondary, including his family. Um, and it's not up to me to tell those stories, but I, I also don't think that a lot of it's a secret. Um, and, you know, we did a show with, with Derek and Kate Lynch, Kate, his daughter, and they talk about it a little bit. Um, you know, Tom burned a lot of bridges personally and in his own family because of the racetrack and the series and selling tires and getting to the next race, you know, in Toronto or whatever. And yeah, nothing else mattered. Tom, do you have a favorite Tom Curley story? I honestly don't really have many. I mean, even all the years calling races, I don't think he spoke to me once. We had the one where he sent the message and got the message to me. And I think it was just cause you know, I was, I was outside that periphery. You know, I don't think it was a, he saw my last name and remembered Pat and said, fuck that kid. I don't think it was anything like that. Uh, I think as long as I didn't fuck something up on the radio, he never heard it, heard me or heard about it and never found the need to talk to me. Yeah. And you know, again, you guys aren't Kevin and, and Marty, you aren't Thunder Road guys per se. So it might be difficult to imagine how far away we were in the radio booth from where Tom Curley was like the other side of the property, like would never even have a reason to see him. So the day that Tom was doing his audition tape up in the media tower, it's probably the only time you were up there. Yeah. Outside you know? of, you know, just doing the video stuff for Carl, which once again, uh, I want to say thank you to Carl Parton who, if probably not for him, I never would have gone down that path or met Justin or anything like that. So thanks to Carl Parton. But yeah, never, never interacted with him. So the media tower being over on top of the front stretch, way above all of the bleachers and, and the flag stand and everything. Mm-hmm. So where's the where's the radio booth then? I mean, I'm I'm trying to put myself at Thunder Road, which is like Kevin said, it's a place I've only been to a handful of times. But you said you guys were were all the way on the other side of the property. Pretty much, we're over in turn number one. We are right where you come off the track to go in the pits. Okay, so, it's a green building, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I were, can, we would I be on the third floor, you know, gotcha. way, way up out of everybody's. Yeah. Perfect. The only times we were even close to him would be before the races. We would try to hit the driver's meeting. Probably earlier in our radio days, we got a little lazier with that as it got on because honestly you stop it's the same stuff there was never really any new breaking news but there were some good drivers meetings that we heard but yeah that was the closest we ever got was a drivers meeting and then he would be off on the front stretch up in the media tower 
the whole time and we'd be over in turn one the whole time. Um, so I guess the next question I have, um, when did uh, Vermont Motorsports Magazine become a thing? Oh, yeah. Um, so the second time that I quit working for Tom, I had a young family at the time and it was things weren't going well at home and I needed to get off the road and, and devote more time to that. But I still wanted to be involved in racing and I needed a project just to keep myself busy. And so I decided to blog um, and that started in speed weeks of 09 and it caught on immediately, which I was not expecting. I thought it was just kind of for me. I and mean, I was trying to do it a little bit professionally, but not as a job or anything. Um, but it became a job fairly quickly and I started to get sponsors and advertisers and I was going to Thunder Road on Thursdays and um, I'd try to find somewhere on Friday and I'd alternate Saturdays between Bear Ridge and Airborne. Sundays would go to Devil's Bowl or if the tour was off somewhere, I'd go there um, doing 70 races a year. And um, that's where I got to know you, uh, Kevin, and did that for three years um, and slept in my car on the side of the road. I can tell you where all the good rest areas are between here and Oxford, Maine. Um, or Thompson, Connecticut, or, you know, Malta, New York. And that got pretty old um, doing it by myself. I took on TJ Anderson and Ricky St. Clair, I think in 11, maybe 2010. Else. What's that? Yeah. Could you find anyone else? <laughs> Your best buddy, TJ. <laughs> <We're tight. laughs> um, we'll get to that too. Um, but then in 2011, in August, CJ Richards put Devil's Bowl up for sale. And I was the only media covering Devil's Bowl. I mean, the newspapers weren't, the TV wasn't, nobody, nobody, nobody. And he called me up and, and said, what are you doing right now? It was like a Tuesday. And he goes, what are you doing right now? And I'd never met CJ before. And he said, come on down. And we sat in rocking chairs in the in the steel garage there. And he said, I'm selling the tracks and. Um, I'm sick and I'm dying and I'm tired of it and blah, blah, blah. And after a couple hours, he goes, you ever met Mike Bruno? I said, yeah. He goes, you ever been to a shop? And I said, no, I, I haven't got a clue where it is. So I followed CJ over to Rutland and we sat with Mike in his office and said, Michael, he goes, this is what's going to go on. He goes, you're going to buy the racetrack and he's going to run it for you. And Mike and I both kind of looked at each other like, what in the hell are you talking about? <laughs> um, but he was right. That's what happened. So I did, I did Vermont Motorsports Magazine for three years and um, I'd had enough by the time it was done. I enjoyed it, but I was really, really burned out, but I was paying my rent with it. It, it was, you know, I, I had made enough money from it that I was putting food on the table and paying my bills and it led to newspaper gigs and the radio gig with DEV came out of that. And uh, working at Bear Ridge, doing the announcing and the press releases came out of that. So it was a full-time job. Is that all you were doing at Bear Ridge was just the announcing and, you know, press releases and stuff? Yeah, I did usually one press release during the middle of the week to kind of hype up the com the upcoming race. And then I would do the results release at the end of the night. And I was announcing with Norm. Did that for, I think, three years over there. Justin, I just kind of wanted to give you a, a little bit of an opportunity to talk about Chow Lee. And, oh, Cho, yeah, man, yeah. And, you know, all the stuff that he had collected over the years. And do you know where that stuff is now? 
I don't. I I don't. And I'm really it makes me very sad that I don't know where that stuff is. Um Choli was amazing. Um he was a historian, loved racing at Thunder Road, not only Thunder Road, but all over Vermont and all over New England, more than anybody I've ever met. And I think he was kind of I always loved the history of it. I always kept records and you know, memorize statistics. And I could tell you every champion from 1960 forward at Thunder Road in order or out of order, if you want. Um, but that was really the end of it. And then meeting Cho late to was kind of like, just it, it really turned the wick up. And he kind of inspired me to get in the mode that I'm in now with all that racing history stuff. And uh, his photo collection was unreal unbelievable he had a whole room in his house that's all that was in there was old pictures of thunder road stacks and stacks and stacks of folders and books and he had a small enclosed trailer that he would bring to bradford once or twice a year and i mean there was pictures in there that i had never seen of you know family members of mine that had raced at either you know thunder road or bear ridge and it was pretty cool to see all that stuff it's somebody needs to to keep track of that stuff you know so that we can we can look back at that stuff and you know it's kind of you know, a cool part about the stuff that you do. Yeah. I think unfortunately when Cho died a few years ago, um, shit, it was 10 years ago now, uh, that collection got scattered and that's all I really want to say about it. <laughs> uh, I, I know, I know what happened to it, but I don't know where it went. And that's the sad part. A lot, a lot of history was lost when Cho passed away. Um, and that's, that's too bad. Justin, you want to talk about your midget experience? I do. I won you your first midget race. Um, <laughs> what happened? Into, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I broke that car in for you. Skip Matzak had, had uh, when they first started the DMA series up at Bear Ridge, um, Skip Matzak brought half the cars. Now he brings all of them. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> and he had one that he showed up without a driver. And the plan was to have me just shake it down. He wanted, he kept saying that he wanted to get me in a car so I could feel it, feel it and see what it was like and whatever. So he had me go out with, with Joe Krawick for five or six laps. And I thought I was going to die. And then he thought I was going to die too, by watching um, because I didn't lift. I wasn't any good, but I didn't lift either. And they, they had me black flagged and get off the track because they're going to kill yourself. But he ended up putting you in the car that night and I don't think you've driven a midget before, have you? Or maybe one time, but you you won the feature. I had driven so you drove the that red twenty three car, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I had driven twice for him. And when he showed up with that car, I was supposed to drive it. And he told me he was gonna have you shake it down. And if you were any good, then I was fired. So after lap one, he looked at me and said, You're out. I said, Okay. And then on the lap later, he goes, Hang on. <laughs> I think I'm gonna have you drive that tonight. <laughs> oh god it was fun but uh i'm not that good <laughs> tom did you ever get behind the wheel just of a motor vehicle on the road my friend <laughs> <laughs> no desire to ever to get behind the wheel and try it out no not really not at this point you know i'm old yeah i'm good I mean, we're all old except for Marty. Stuff starts to hurt now when you, uh, man, you don't even have to wreck just a long race and the next day you're sore. 
Yeah. I get sore from a bad night's sleep in bed, man. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a quick break in our conversation and tell you that today's podcast is brought to you in part by Elite Designs. They're here to work for you. Whether you're starting a new business, looking to change the image of an existing business, or expanding the branding that you already have. Logo design, decals and stickers, vehicle lettering, including door logos, partial wraps and full wraps, banners, signs, motorsports, installations, you name it. They will work with you one-on-one to take your vision and make it a reality. Visit the Facebook page at Elite Designs to view past and present projects. And when you're ready to go, you can contact Bobby Therian at EliteDesigns5x at gmail.com or call or text 802-355-7735. New England weather is unpredictable, and when the power goes out, you'll need a backup plan. That's why you should call Bushy's Generator Sales and Service in Springfield and Brookfield, Vermont. Bushy's is the number one Briggs & Stratton dealer in the state of Vermont, and they'll help you every step of the way, from sales and installation of Kohler and Briggs and & Stratton home standby propane generators to service and maintenance on all makes and models of generators from 10 kilowatts to 200. Bushy's Generator Sales and Service has been in business for 10 years, and they cover all of Vermont and New Hampshire, as well as Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New York. If you need a backup plan, call Bushy's Generator Sales and Service at 802 802- 591-1903 or visit their Facebook page or bushysgenerator.com. Plus, you know, you can always talk racing with Ben because he's won a lot more races than I ever have. Bushy's Generator Sales and Service of Springfield and Brookfield, Vermont. We keep your power on. Barry Tile and Morrison Clark Incorporated have got you covered, literally. They're your number one stop in central Vermont for all types of flooring, whether it's tile, carpet, hardwood, or any other type of flooring, indoor or outdoor, for your home or your business. Barry Tile staff are qualified installers who can offer you real-world flooring experience and knowledge that you don't always find in the big chain stores. But you don't need our endorsement. They've been family-owned and operated since 1972, which means they're celebrating 50 years in business in 2022, and that stands for itself. And hey, not only are they great at what they do, they're racers too. You got it, man. Check out Barry Tile's Facebook page to see some examples of their incredible work. You can call them the old-fashioned way, 802-476-0912, or just stop into the showroom, 889 South Barry Road in Barry, Vermont. Make sure that you tell them that the guys at Uncommon Deeds sent you. Thanks to all our sponsors who help us bring this show to you for free every single week. Now, back to our show. Uh, so, listen, no, I've... I know this is your show this week, but I'm taking over for a minute. We got to hear your stories, at least briefly, right? What, because, what do you want? Well, we're the Thunder Road podcast, according to you. So we got to introduce these people to dirt <laughs> racers. Good job. And I'm going to make you wait. I'm going to start with Marty. All right. <laughs> Marty Kelly, uh, you're 21 now. That's the right old age of 20. Are you really? Wow. You're an old man. Um, a two-time feature winner at Devil's Bowl Speedway in the Sportsman Modifieds. Both, honestly, two of the most exciting races I've seen in the last 10 years. Um, I don't remember a lot about the racing nights. You know, I don't remember a lot of features, but I remember both of those because your finishes were amazing. Um, Second-generation racer out of Bennington. We're coming from all four corners of the state right now, by the way. Tom's in Colchester. I'm down in Bridport. Marty's way down near Bennington and Kevin's way over in Bradford. So 
we've got the whole state covered, but Marty, uh, you've become quite the little racer, man. Um, yeah, we, we do. Okay. And I've got a long way to go and there's a lot of things that I still have to work on in, in terms of, uh, just trying to kind of make better setup decisions more than anything. And, and sometimes to make no setup decisions, um, I, I might have one or two more feature wins by now if I just left the wrenches at home. Um, yeah, but that's that, you know, that's how you learn. And we have a lot of fun uh, on the road and, uh, dad and I just got back from, from South Carolina and Florida running for, um, for dirt car in South Carolina at Lakeview and, and for Brett Dio down in, in Florida at, at all tech. And it's grown into, uh, a bigger operation than I ever really thought we'd have going just finally got an enclosed trailer and no it makes me it makes me sad to think that um not only not only you know kids on the road uh, won't won't see the car anymore but there's um there's a small population of of Amish people up uh, around Salem New York right on right on 22 mm-hmm. uh, which is how we get the Devil's Bowl from from uh, from North Bennington and every Saturday like clockwork we'd uh We'd meet the same fellow and his horse and buggy, you know, headed southbound there while we were heading up to Devil's Bowl. And, you know, he, he loved the race car. He'd always give us a big thumbs up. And so it makes makes me sad that we're, we're losing that element of it. But it's uh, – You're we killing very, the sport, Marty. We're very <laughs> – Dan Duville is going to be so mad at you. He's going to be pissed. Bloggers everywhere will, will come for me for sure. Um, <laughs> but, um, no, we, we have a lot of fun with it. and it's getting dad itchy to get back into it. Um, Oh really? He he hasn't raced since um, we got him in a go-kart right about 11 years ago. Um, And before that he was on hiatus since about 2005 or six. Dad was pretty good. He had um, 13 wins at at Bear Ridge in two seasons and one at devil's bowl in, uh, in 1994, he got his first one and he got out of it around 2000 when, uh, you know, my, my sister and I kind of came into the world and um, he knew that he had a, a, a job to do and, and to take care of us and, and uh, you know, start start the family and everything. And But we, we've all gotten into it. You know, my sister goes whenever she can and mom, she loves to go to the races. And so we, we have a lot of fun with it and grew up just just wanting to be like dad as much as possible, like like everybody else for the most part. And, you know, so far I've. Uh, I've achieved a small part of that in, uh, in in being a guy that gets to drive a race car. Yeah, your mom is the biggest fan of the whole bunch. She's great, you know, and and we're we're very fortunate that uh, that she's she's made it to both of the wins at Devil's Bowl, the the one limited sportsman victory years ago now, five years ago at, at Glenridge, she wasn't there for, and she was starting to think that we were doing better when she didn't go, and so we, we were really. We were really glad that she she made it there for for both of the 2020 win and then last year's win as well. And it's so cliche and goofy, you know. The real trophy was the friends we made along the way, kind of thing. But oh my god, year after year, you know, I, I feel that way more and more. I mean, you know, we're 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 getting rainouts and we we play cornhole in Justin Combs' garage in Fairhaven. And I mean, this summer I drove, you know, all the way up an hour up there on. Saturday night when we rained out and then I drove home and Sunday, you know, we got up and drove back up here and come to the races and I get to race with my, my good buddy Tanner Siemens who, you know, I met through racing and 
you know, I, I used to hate pictures when I was younger, but now, you know, I make sure we take them all the time and I order them just about as big as the photographers will print them and frame them up and uh, put them in my room. So we, we have, uh, have a lot of fun with it and try to try to make the most out of it. And you're just in St. Louis announcing protege. <laughs> He's a Dan Martin announcing protege. Let's be real here. So I, I've had a lot of mentors as far as, as far as the media side of things goes. And Clancy Miller, who was a photographer at Fonda Speedway and, and later an announcer, he gave me my start in the, the announcer's tower at Caroga Creek Raceway Park, which is a go-kart track in Afreda, New York, just, just past Fonda, when I was uh, 11 years old. So Clancy was kind of my first mentor, and, and those were my first, you know, paying jobs as a kid, really, were collecting 20 bucks to announce every race but mine on, you know, a Saturday night and at whichever track we were at. And I, uh, I ended up at the Lebanon Valley Kart Track, where Howard Commander invited me over to uh, the big track. And I learned a lot from Mike Warren, who was the, the pit reporter there and Hell yeah. uh, did a lot of heat races. Yeah, Justin knows Mike. Um, Mike's got a great gig. He works for, for Dirt Vision now in the WRG and uh, gets to, to talk to all the, the late model drivers and stuff like that. And, yeah, I got to work with John Stanley and Dan Martin a lot at Lebanon Valley. I've been fortunate to work with Justin. I've worked with Jay Severson at, at Glen Ridge at times, him and Dan Haslin. Um, Jay's at Devil's Bowl now, and, and we're all excited to have him there yeah, for that. For sure. um, I worked recently. One of the uh, the highlights of my whole experience in, in motorsports uh, across everything so far has been uh, getting to call the, the 60th Eastern States 200 this past fall uh, with Tim Pitts, who's been uh, the announcer at Orange County for a long time. And, you know, so I've gotten a, uh, an opportunity to work with a lot of a lot of great guys and um, had a lot of fun. And, and Bobby Chalmers has given me a lot of opportunities at Race Pro Weekly to to write and uh, you know work on some some video production stuff. And I'm I'm getting into trying to branch out and get into other sports. I'm I'm driving to to Northfield on Saturday for uh, women's hockey semifinal. It's part of my internship here at uh, Castleton and gonna I, I guess go for my master's in media and communications you know I, i'll juggle both for uh, as long as i can kevin i think you would agree that the star of oswego was marty kelly <laughs> all those I'm, I'm serious too with all those videos the reports and stuff from race pro weekly marty was marty made a lot of people happy that weekend a lot of unhappy people became happier because of marty's work yeah i I, so I didn't get to see a lot of Marty stuff cause I was, you know, I didn't watch it. I was there. So I, you know, I, I didn't get to see anything unless it was live, but he did a hell of a good job giving away that TL. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did. Uh, I, I did work. I thought I wore a fake mustache and went with an assumed name for that segment, but I guess Kevin, Kevin figured me out. And that, that was great too. That was kind of, um, that, that was really helpful for me heading into the Eastern States weekend thing because Brett Hearn is, is the new boss at Orange County. And so to kind of be able to, to get a good word in there from, uh, from the guys at TO to get that across the board to, uh, to brother Brett, that, that helped out a lot. And I, I appreciate you saying that uh, about all the stuff that I did at, at Super Dirt Week because uh, that week was a lot of fun for a multitude of different reasons. It always is. Kevin, you have, a lot more wins and championships. So for you, it's probably more so about that than the friends you've met along the way. There's a dig. 
yeah. Um, Kevin has trophies older than Marty. Yeah, Marty's Marty's a good kid. Him and Tanner both are a couple of you know guys that are going to be really good racers when they get older. And I, you know, I I spend a lot of time with Tanner just because he's close by, and you know, I always say hi to Marty at the racetrack whenever I see him. He's a good kid. I let Kevin down once. Um, I remember Kevin helped me out uh, in 2020 when everything was uh, shut down at the beginning of the season with COVID. We had an opportunity to to practice at Devil's Bowl in May and maybe one at Malta too, uh, but we, we couldn't race anywhere. And, and one place was open and that was Penn Cam. So I had, I think Dave Constantino at DKM gave me two two American racer front tires. And I think I probably bought two new rears from, from Mike Romano at, at Andy's. And the only problem now was I didn't have any spares. So we're going to Penn Can, which is four hours away from the house. Kyle and Frank Hoare Jr. Uh, went down there and helped us out. Jeff was there too. Kyle and Frank are another, another great group of guys that, uh, that I've got to be really close with uh, in doing this. And, um, I got. I don't remember if it was Tanner that put me in touch with Kevin, or if I put out a word on Facebook. I think, and Kevin said uh, to come on down. So I, I got some tires. Uh, Kevin had some, some takeoffs uh, from the first year he went down to Florida. I think it was. So I could at least have some spares to go to Pencan with and be, you know, four hours away from home and not hit a uke tire in practice like I've been known to do, and you know, not have a tire to run in feature. Kevin gave the tires to Tanner, and I met up with Tanner. I, you know, I think I asked Kevin if he wanted any money for him, and he said, no, just just thank me when you get to Victory Lane. And we got the Victory Lane in the B-Main that day at Penn Can, but uh, <laughs> they don't interview you for that one. So I missed that opportunity. We finished ninth in the feature. When we finally got the Victory Lane uh, five months later in, in, or four months later in September, Kevin was there that night at Devil's Bowl. I remember uh, I pulled off the track and, you know, people leaning in the car and shaking my hand and stuff, which is really cool. And Right before I get to the scales, or maybe it was right when I pull off, and Kevin gets right up on the Nerf bar and grabs me by the suit, and he says, Marty, Marty, you forgot to thank me. <laughs> so I, let, I let Kevin down there, and then, of course, we won in, uh, we won in June this year, and I forgot to thank Kevin again. So, oh God. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to either start winning more races or – I did the same thing with Tanner. Tanner was running that asphalt series down at Claremont. And he brought me a couple dyno sheets and he's like, can you make shocks that are anywhere close to these? I was like, yeah, sure. So I, I made him some shocks and he, same thing. He's like, what do you want? I said, ah, just thank me in victory lane. And he, he won the first week with those shocks and I'm reading every press release I can find. And I sent him a message and said, Hey, no mention of my name. What's going on? <laughs> Before we get back to your Barry tile quick hitters, Kevin, you have to, to give us a little bit, at least of your story. I know your family was huge into Bear Ridge in the 60s and 70s, correct? Yeah, I didn't know any of that until I was in, I don't know, until I was a teenager or so. But my first memory of Bear Ridge Speedway was, I don't know, I was probably six or seven years old. And me and Adam Pearson were in the front row and sitting there playing with the Matchbox cars. And I paid attention to Bob Shepard and Gene, of course, because those, you know, Bob Shepard was my neighbor. He lived in the next house down. And, you know, I, grew up with Gene and Adam and those guys. Uh, my mom and Adam's mom were, were close. So I just remember sitting there in the front row playing with our matchbox cars racing. And I was probably winning 
because you know that's how that always happened and uh i saw blue and orange number eight modified roll on the track and i didn't know who it was and he spanked him and he did that for the next two years and watching that guy is all i wanted to do uh it was randy howe and from you know that point on the only thing i wanted to do was drive a race car i ate race cars i slept dreaming about race cars it's all i ever wanted to do from that point on the the only reason i'm a mechanic is because i wanted to know how an engine worked because i knew that it was going to be hard for me to race and i was probably going to have to build my own engines so i took the auto program at you know in high school at, at oxbow and just to learn how an engine worked and you know then i got wrapped up and beating my knuckles all day long at work i mean that's how i got into it well, that doesn't that doesn't really tell the whole story though i mean you've been winning races up there for 20 years i was gonna start off in the four cylinders as soon as i got out of school the the first thing i went to i did was went to the bank and got a loan so i could buy a race car i didn't care about a vehicle i didn't even have i'm using my own truck now 2021 was the first year i used my own vehicle to tow my race car to the racetrack i borrowed a trailer for the first two years anyway to get back to your to, to the point um i was gonna buy a four-cylinder and I wanted the same guys that I was working on Bob Shepard's car um, to help me out. And Gordy Perry told me if I was going to buy a four-cylinder, he didn't want any part of it because they weren't real race cars. So that pretty much limited me to either a modified or a coupe. Worked out a deal with Gene, and Adam finished his rookie season with a car and loaded it on the trailer, and I took it home. I raced coupes for, I don't know, a decade or so. And the 602 crate motor is really the only reason that I can even afford to run a modified because I'm still doing this on ever since day one i've been doing it on my own dime i've had i've had a ton of help not that i haven't had help along the way but my wallet for the most part has been you know i put every dime i've had in in the race cars i didn't own a house until i was 37 or something like that i guess i'm gonna be the one that has to read the stats then you've got five championships to your resume most recently uh 2018 bear ridge sportsman champion and i don't Bring this up to bring you down, but a couple of weeks ago, you were in victory lane down in Florida, and yeah. it looked great. I know that you got tossed in tech and whatever, but you know the point is that you're quickly becoming – quickly may not be the right word because you've been doing it for 20 years, but the last several years, you really emerged as one of the top sports and racers in the Northeast. And that's all just from getting out of my backyard. You know, we noticed – you know, we had been going to Super Dirt Week for – you know, a couple of years and it would take me all week long just to get up to speed. Um, just from bad habits, I'd learned racing quarter miles. I mean, Canaan, Bear Ridge and Legion's, you know, in my backyard, that's the only place I've ever raced. And I had a lot of bad habits and I'd get to a, a larger racetrack and, you know, that stuff would show and I'd time trial crappy and have to dig myself out of a B main because I wouldn't qualify through the heat race. And after we won the championship at Bradford, we decided to you know, if we wanted to do better at the bigger tracks and out in New York, we had to go race on them. So instead of racing at Barrage every week, we'd, we'd pick a racetrack and we'd go, you know, we spent, I think it was 2020 hauling the Fonda every Saturday night to race out there and then became really good friends with the guys at Tio and they've helped me out a ton. So all that's transitioned into just, you know, having a good sportsman team. You know, I've got a ton of experience now, got more experience at the bigger tracks and man, I love all tech. That place is so slippery and you can pound it up against the fence or you can go low and slow on the bottom. That place just really fits my driving style. I mean, the, the first year we went there the last night, uh, my lap time was quick enough to finish like eighth in the big block race coming along. We're getting there and it kind of stinks that I don't really have that, 
you know, if you look at the stats, I don't really have that win outside of my my core group of tracks. But I I think the summer is going to be a good summer. All right. Humble enough. Get back to your show. All right. Time for some very Kyle quick hitters. So normally you guys would start off by asking, you know, what's the dumbest thing you've ever done in a race car? Since we can't ask Tom that question, what's the the dumbest thing or the rudest thing you've ever said on the mic or written down that pissed somebody off? I love this question. Oh, you have to answer it too. Oh, that's fine. Man, nothing pops out for me. I've really had it, you know, through four years of school and whatever it's been now, coming up on 20-ish years or close to it. It's been beat in my head that I'm pretty professional when I can turn the mic on. I can I can kind of shut shut the other stuff off. Yeah, nothing jumps out really stupid or rude. Do you have a dumbest thing you've ever done in a streetcar? That I probably do. Yeah. There's one that stands out right off the top of my head. I was 16. I had a GMC Jimmy, and we were taking it from Woodbury to Marshfield to get some work done on it. And the easiest way to get there is back roads, and there's a real steep road along the way with a real sharp turn. And being an arrogant 16-year-old that I was, I wanted to see if I could make it all the way up the hill in two-wheel drive. I did not make it up the hill. I went off the side of the hill and landed on a boulder right on the passenger side. And that dumb, dumb decision, at least real quick, and I don't, I've never told my dad this, so he'll listen at some point to this and he'll, <laughs> he'll hear it. I was smart enough when it, as soon as it happened in my head, I knew that I was supposed to be in four wheel drive. So as it was sitting there, I popped it into four wheel drive real quick, <laughs> kicked out the sunroof of the Jimmy and got, and got out. So when I flagged my dad down and he came up the hill, all four wheels were spinning, baby. <laughs> That's the smartest thing you ever did in a streetcar. Followed by, yeah, following up the dumbest thing. So that was, that was probably the dumbest thing I'd ever done. Wow. Was, oh, I, I want to see if I can make it up in two-wheel drive and slid right off that corner. That wasn't at Justin Hart's house, was it? No, no, that was, uh, that was another classy town. That was Woodbury, yeah. where I was. So which one are you asking me? Oh, the dumbest thing you've ever written down or said about somebody. Oh, God, Jesus. So I've got a few. Um, Depending on the story, you'll figure out who's never going to be on this show. Yep, absolutely. Uh, So Ben Rowe, uh, I owe an apology to, and he'll probably never listen to this, and he probably doesn't want to hear it or care or anything, but I got some information that was, I don't know if it was good or not. I think it was, I think it was reliable information, but uh it was about a split in his team. This is 2010 or nine or 11 or something in there. And I wrote the story, but I never called him to get his side of the story. And it made him look terrible. He called me up and, and he read me the riot act and I deserved it. And we haven't talked since. And now he's the ACT champion and he should be on the show, <laughs> but that's what, why he's not Kevin LePage. I already apologized to on the show when I told him that he should quit racing uh, when he was doing the start and park thing in cup, I, I got a lot of emails from Tom Curley in my Vermont motorsports magazine days 
but I was always right. And I know that because I would, he would, he would call me out on something that I wrote and then I would respond to him with facts that he couldn't deny. So I always got the upper hand on that. And that always made me feel great. But the one thing that I have always, this is my favorite story uh, about something I wrote in 2005, I worked for speed 51 back when they were first getting off the ground and I was doing it in trade for pit passes just to go to the races for free. There was a race, an ACT race somewhere. I don't even remember where it was. And Phil Scott and Patrick LaPearl got into it. And it wasn't really that bad, but it was like they slapped doors or nose to tail or something like that. And one moved the other one out of the way. And I interviewed LaPearl after and in his very French accent, fuck Phil Scott, he says. And I wrote it. And, And Speed 51 printed it. Well, the next week was Labor Day at Thunder Road, and I walk in the pits, and I get through the street stock pits, and I start making my way through the late models, and everybody kind of does the slow head turn, like, oh, St. Louis is here. <laughs> and Roger Brown is the first one that came out of a trailer, and he goes, have you seen LaPearl yet? I said, no. He goes, you better stay away from him. He's hot. And I said, what did I do? And he goes, I don't know, but he's pissed. I was like, Okay. So I start kind of making my way down, getting quotes and stuff. And finally, this big bear paw grabs onto my arm and spins me around. And of course, it's Patrick. And he says, I know what I said. You know what I said. But that does not mean that you can print it. He goes, (laughs) Buckville Scott, that's fine. But if you ever write that shit again, I'll fucking kill you. You know, I'm doing a very (laughs) bad French accent. But it was. And then he gave me a hug, you know, and it was like, everything's fine. But you know he said it i just i wrote it down but uh yeah that was maybe the dumbest thing that i that i wrote you guys have a favorite story from uh, a a previous guest that did not make it to the show but that you can still tell now no there's <laughs> no. stories there yeah. are stories but there's a reason why they're Ask not us in, in there. 10 years yeah, there are there are reasons they're not in there. Shirley Muldowney gave us a few. Yeah, <laughs> the Hart brothers. After we yep. stopped recording, there was some Dylan, some Dylan Nick's, Smith last week gave us some good stuff off air. Yeah, oh man, uh, there was some Nick Sweet quotes that were hilarious, but I'm not going to tell you what they were, <laughs> and that says a lot because we let. It, most everything go on this show. So <laughs> use your imaginations there. Oh man. Uh, but yes, Dwayne there are great. stories. There are stories, but anything that we could put in they're in there. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of bald jokes on this show that don't always make it to air. No, I'm um, sure. Dwayne Lanfear get, got at us pretty hard. Brad Layton got at us pretty hard. Most everybody has who has yeah. any hair. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Ask us that once the show is done. Like on our last show, come back and ask us that question when right. we don't give a shit. If you guys had call it like a, a bucket list interview, like the person you want to interview the most past, present, future, you know, still with us, gone. Who would that be? Like who who would who do you want to sit down with and just write, you know, a 10 page article about or whatever? Tom Curley. Yeah. No, I, and it's a close tie with C.J. Richards, actually, just because I know Tom or knew Tom much better, for sure, Tom Curley. Pretty predictable, and it's going to happen at some point. 
I'm really looking forward to talk to my uncle Pat because there's yeah. a lot of stuff even I don't know about his early career and, you know, maybe some stuff with my grandfather who helped out with uh, Armin LeCare and he drove one time. I do know that. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that one now that almost 20 years removed from more or less when he retired, minus a small comeback that ended in a barrel roll. Um, so I'm looking forward flip. to that one. Another one outside of that, I would have really enjoyed probably talking to Stub Fadden. Oh, man. Absolutely. And um, I really do want to track down Butch Elms, you know, if he can ever get out of the I, barn or whatever. I sit down for a minute. Say, Butch Elms has got stories for days. Like I, I've gone up during the day to buy tires or fuel or whatever. And, you know, been gone for two hours because me and Butch sat on the back of the tailgate and he was just telling stories about, you know, racing here, racing there, telling a story about this guy, you know, um, Butch has got some stories. Oh yeah, absolutely. We have, I can't reveal our, our whole wish list because we've got a long, long list. Um, but there are some answers that I would give to that question normally, if it wouldn't spoil what we're trying to work on behind the scenes for the show, including some long road trips that I think will eventually happen. Huge racing world outside of uh, Barry Vermont guys. Absolutely. You got any, any stories from getting tossed out uh, back in your days as, as just folks in the pit area, the stands or, or getting, getting into any fights? No. I had I don't have many of those. I'd love to see you fist fight with somebody on pit road, Tom. It it takes a lot to get me get me to that spot. I'm a real low key guy. Uh, I've come close a couple times and pick up men's basketball, and probably to my own detriment. Uh, but yeah, not too many. I've had a few warnings. I've never been tossed from anything. I've gotten a few technicals coaching basketball, but I've stayed on the line. I haven't been tossed from anything yet. 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 You got kids that you got to teach them how to stand up for themselves. You got plenty of time. I don't don't have to worry about that with these two bowling balls. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Shit. Do I tell the milk bowl foam peanut story now? I guess I will. Um, Yes. My my father sort of special requested that. So I'm I'm glad that we've come to this. All right. So in 2004, and this goes back to filling Dave Moody's shoes, it was my first gig or my first time announcing at Thunder Road. It was Milk Bowl Saturday, and I had been announcing at Airborne for a year, I guess two years. Um, You know, Milk Bowl Saturday doesn't really matter. It's a small crowd. It's junk divisions mostly, and it's just for fun. I I had a Geo Metro that we had bought for $160. Uh, it had a roll cage in it and we put it out in the warrior division with my, my roommate at the time, uh, Jason Pichet driving. He'd never driven a race car and that wasn't a race car, but it had a number on the door. So we had built that up on whatever social media was available at the time. It was pre Facebook, but aim profiles or something. I don't know what the hell, but we had, we had made a big deal about it. It was probably on MySpace, and, uh, there was some some fun hype with that, and he got dumped on the last lap and flipped over and landed on his wheels and kept going, and it was just spectacular. So we were all riding a big high off that. It was the last lap of the day, 
before the, the barbecue and the drinking and the bonfires and all this stuff. And they had back then they had the Calcutta, which was over in the barbecue pavilion. They would auction off drivers and raise money towards the purse for the milk bowl the next day. And this, it got serious. There was always like fifteen dollars to $20,000 in cash raised uh, on those Calcuttas. They'd have a big spaghetti dinner and get Yvonne Bedard, who was a auctioneer in Quebec with, you know, doesn't speak English. He'd take his belt off and use it as like the, the gavel and get people's attention and slap it on the table. And it was hilarious. Great, great memories of that. So I, I've got the geo on my father's truck and trailer out in the parking lot set up over by the people we're going to camp with that night. And I walk my way over to the barbecue and have a great time there. And, but I noticed I'm the only one of my friend group that went over there. That's whatever. So I hung out with some racers and made my way back over about an hour later. And it's dark at this point. And everybody's kind of standing around the truck giggling. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, something's up. Then I look and I see it's just white inside the pick inside the cab of the pickup. And I'm like, it wasn't like that when I left. And I open the door and it's floor to ceiling with foam packing peanuts and shreds of paper. And I'm like, Holy shit. My dad is going to kill me. Uh, this is, this is a bad situation. And then I realized the keys are somewhere in the truck, but not in the ignition. So I don't know where they are. So I've got to dig for them. They're on the seat. And as soon as you open the door you know, everything falls out, it's windy, like 25 mile an hour winds that night. <laughs> Everybody's out in the parking lot drinking and it's just chaos, just total chaos. And everybody is having the time of their lives, except me. I'm shitting my pants because not only am, is my father going to kill me, but I'm also an employee this weekend. I was announcing and I had my radio gig with George Como the next day. That was my first gig with George Como um, all in that weekend. But the damage is done. I mean, I had to I had to do something to get the foam peanut. I couldn't even I couldn't drive the truck. You know, it was up over the dashboard and above, you know, your line of sight. So we had, here we go, just scooping all this shit out of the truck onto the ground. And there's girls walking by doing, you know, snow angels in it and people picking it up and throwing it in the air. Like, you know, it was just a bad situation and everybody had fun, fun with it. And I eventually had enough beer in me that I had fun with it, but knowing that it's going to be a bad deal in the morning. So we all scatter because we know we're in deep, deep shit 12 hours later. And so none of us sleep near that truck. I ended up in the back of Randy Bosley's pickup truck with a cap on it, sleeping on a mattress in the back of the bed. And everybody else is in tents over on the other side of the property, just trying to hide. And they all had the presence of mind to wake up at six in the morning and get the hell out of there. But I knew that I had to stay and take my lumps. And so I kind of snuck in Seamus Curley, Tom's son found me and he's like, you better hide. Like dad is looking for you. I'm like, yep, I know that. And I kind of slink my way through the pits, similar to the LaPearl thing <laughs> and try to make my way to the, to the pit tower to, to just slip up into the radio booth and just hide for the rest of the day. But of course, Tom Curley intercepts me. He was like, he must've been on a mast of a pirate ship with binoculars looking for me or something like that. And he found me and he grabbed me by the arm and made sure that I was directly in the middle of pit road where everybody could see and hear what was happening. And if you know, Tom, he had that crooked 
you know, index finger and he'd point it backwards kind of up your nose when he was mad at you and, and scream at you. And he goes, your job is not to worry about the goddamn race today. Your job is to clean up my goddamn parking lot. Yes, sir. And I went out and for the next three hours by hand, picking up handfuls of packing peanuts and throwing them in the garbage. And there's pictures somewhere online of, I mean, it looks like it snowed in the parking lot the next day and people were driving through it and tracking it all over the place. And some of it got it ended up in a fire and lit on fire. It was just a, it was a bad deal, but I ended up, I ended up sneaking back in and doing the radio gig. Where did the packing peanuts come from? I don't know. To this day. No clue. Uh, a bunch of people got together in secret, you know, weeks in advance. They were going to do popcorn, but they couldn't find enough popcorn. And I'm grateful that they didn't because think of what it would have done to the interior of that truck. You know, the butter and the salt and all that stuff. So I got my ass kicked by Tom that day and got home and got my ass kicked by my father. Not literally, but, you know, blankety, blankety, blank. And the next day I spent nine hours on my hands and knees in that parking lot on a Monday. I had to call out of work and go clean up that parking lot. We had duct tape wrapped backwards around our hands like to stick onto the ground. We brought vacuum cleaners. We brought lawnmowers, trash bags, just anything that we could think of. And we didn't get it all. Um, and for like two or three years, you that could see me. around the edge of the parking lot, there were foam peanuts, like along the tree line that got stuck, you know, in the, in the grass and the leaves. It was amazing. Who's we, who are you there with on Monday with the trash bags and the lawnmowers? And- so, uh, Gene Gagne was one of the guys behind it. He used to run outside groove and Gene and I do not get along, do not see eye to eye. This wasn't really the reason why, um, I never forgot it. But he was part of the the group that put all that together. And there were a few other people that I, I don't even really know who was involved. Um, but I took the fall for it, for sure. One more question. Um, if you guys can can custom make a race, I guess it's under road. Um, you can pick any driver from any, uh, you know, any surface or whatever. Who are, who are the 10 guys that you want to see race together? Or five, if you want to just pick five. Tens a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That would have to take some thought. I think I would I would want if I was doing it and we've talked about it. I'd want like your your elite guys, maybe bring back your Brian Hoare, your Gene Paul Sear, Nick Sweet, Derek O'Donnell, all those guys, those heavy hitters, Jason Corliss, and I want them to run in street stock. <laughs> well, nice. Yeah. yeah. Justin, what about you? So I'm actually going to surprise you and not say Thunder Road. Um, I would do a wingless sprint car race somewhere on a dirt track. Kokomo is number one on my bucket list out in Indiana. Yep. You get there fast and then you take it slow. Oh my God. I knew it was coming. <laughs> um, yeah. I, but I would have drivers from all different types of things. I really love the SRX concept. I don't know if I love SRX itself, but the concept is amazing. The concept behind it is great. Yep. Um, I would have Junior Hanley. I would have Steve Kinzer. I would have, you know, all those elite drivers from every walk of life, I guess, um, just to stack them up in equal equipment and see what they could do. I don't know. I don't have, I guess I I could come up with 10 different races and 10 sets of drivers for that scenario. But uh, yeah. You got another one, Marty? I think I'm good. As that's all I got. All right, close. It's your show. Close it out. Oh, how do we close it out? Uh, forget. Um, you thank us for being on the show. <laughs>
I think this is perfect. We have to leave this in. <laughs> Smart ass is coming up with an idea. This is a great idea, I thought, and I, I couldn't think of like who I could have do it because I didn't really want it to be me because I, I don't know shit about interviewing people. But I knew probably Marty's really good at talking, so I thought that maybe if I, I brought Marty on, he, he'd help me out a little bit. I like. I think you guys did a good job. I, no, I think we did. I think we did okay. Um, I don't think we did too bad. But um, yeah, well, we'd like to thank Tom Corbett and uh, Justin St. Louis for taking some time out of their out of their busy schedules to join us on the show today. I'm not sure how we're going to work guest the guest out for this one, but uh, we're not. We're not. <laughs> and it's already happened by the time they're here. Yeah. So. <laughs> Who the hell would guess this? Yeah. Well, that's the hack, right? You don't give away any stickers. You don't give away any hats. That's yeah. that didn't get it. So that's uh, because coming very soon, you're going to buy your hats, folks. That's right. That's right. <laughs> no, but uh, thank thank you guys for uh, for agreeing to kind of do this and hang out with us, and and thanks for for flipping the coin a little bit and and uh, you know talking to me and Kevin. I don't I don't think we really expected that that was going to happen. So we. We uh, we appreciate that, and you know we uh, we both really enjoy the show, and you know, I know a lot of people that really enjoy the show, and hopefully Kevin can stop busting you guys' balls about he won't uh, only talking. Not gonna happen. Thunder Road guys, but um, next week we're interviewing the track itself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's I think that's my favorite Tom Corbett joke that I've ever heard on the show, actually. So. Uh. Thanks for letting us do this again. You know, it was nice to hear some more about Justin and his, you know, his driving and, you know, all that stuff. I kind of knew him, but Tom, I, I didn't know who you were and, you know, we didn't get to hear anything about you really. And you just started doing this thing with Justin here and uh, it's been uh, good to get to know you. So there it is. We want to thank Tom and Justin for giving us so much of their time here today. <laughs> They were great, Tom and Justin. They, they killed it, really. I thought they were well-spoken, handsome. Just dashing, man. Just really intellectual. Just Worldly. That was cool, right? Yeah. It was different. It was fun to be on the flip side, the flippity-flop, as the kids say. Hmm. I don't think the kids say that, but it was cool to be – you know, I I didn't know any of the questions they were going to ask us, um, nor did you. So it was cool to experience what we put people through every week. You know, luckily like, we listened to enough of our own shows that I at least had an idea on what yeah. some of them were going to be. So, but no, there was some different ones. I'm like, okay, I got to talk about some stuff that I don't normally get to talk about on this podcast mm-hmm. on the broadcasting side. Yeah, I definitely learned things about you that I didn't know. And I feel like I know a lot about you, <laughs> but there were some questions that were asked or answers that were given, at least that I never had heard before, which was, I appreciated that very much. It was cool. Yeah. Likewise. Like you say, yeah. it's, it's a different, it's a completely different personality from interviewer to interviewee, mm-hmm. especially for me. And I mentioned it kind of in there where I've done this so long and you know, this is I can be one way. And then as soon as we hit record, it flips 
especially when we were doing the races and I just turned into broadcaster Tom and it's a different a different tone and personality. Yep. An interviewee gets to be a little more a little more me. And I like to think the podcast is more me than normal broadcaster Tom, but yeah, it was it was different and I got to hit those stories, which is fun. Uh you were more long car ride Tom during the show. You know, and I was I was hoping we were going to hit that question. You know who's going to be my answer? Oh, you, big guy. Thank you. you. I love our Come car rides. Now. It's pretty good. We've had a lot of them. Minus unless I could, like, bring someone back from the dead. <laughs> Another long car ride with my grandpa telling him what I've done would be pretty cool. But of the living. Of the living. Of the living. <laughs> and not my, you know, household. You are there. You're That's right, right there. Sally's <laughs> not going to listen anyway, so it's fine. This one's somewhat about me. She might listen. Oh, she one. might. Yeah. Linda won't listen. <laughs> she, will, she will use this opportunity to hear less of me. That is. You know what? Yeah, probably not going to listen. <laughs> I have a uh, few of those, which I've I've told many of my friends and family members. Like, I get it. Racing is a niche thing, and I know that you don't enjoy it. I'm not offended <laughs> that you don't listen. Yeah, like my sister's like, yeah, I I listen to the open and the close. <laughs> okay, we'll take it. All right, yeah, I think that good. counts as a listen. We'll take it. Well, that's that's a that's a she's invested in you, right? You know, that's nice. That is nice. Uh, my niece, we've got Mackenzie with us this weekend, and. She's like, oh, you're still doing the podcast? <laughs> yeah. Yep, I am. Thanks. She goes, yeah, I only listened to like the one where Al was on. Make sure you are uh, following us on all the socials, Uncommon Deeds on Twitter and Facebook, Uncommon Deeds Podcast on the Instagram. Mm-hmm, the Instagram. If you want to become a part of of the Uncommon Media family, whether you want to sponsor this show, the Crunch Bunch show, both shows, or you have a media or podcast idea that you think we can help you with, you can get on us on any of those socials, or you can email us, uncommonmediavt at gmail.com. If you've got a weird idea like this show that we just did, let's do it. Let's get weird. Let's get weird. Let's get uncommon. Let's get reasonably weird <laughs> fair enough uh we'll be back <laughs> next week in our more comfortable known ro- roles yeah we've got we've got uh a really really good guest lined up for next week and working on several really really good future guests um that we've made contact with and and things are coming together so it's good You've been listening to the Uncommon Deeds podcast, a production of Uncommon Media.